this is Evan Marquette, dating coach for smart, strong, successful women and your personal trainer for love. Welcome back to the Love You podcast, where you will learn everything you need to know about dating relationships, sex, and men from a man's point of view. As always, thank you for turn, tuning in for your kind reviews on iTunes and for telling your friends about this little old podcast. And if somehow you haven't subscribed to the Love You podcast before, you can do it now by clicking on the button in the email or the blog post and clicking the subscribe button on iTunes. Today's guest is someone I have wanted to meet sincerely for years. He's probably who I would be if I were an academic, but I did drop out of film school and he teaches at Northwestern, God bless him. His name is Eli Finkel, and he wrote perhaps my favorite relationship book of 2017, The All or Nothing Marriage, which talks about how the best marriages have gotten stronger while the rest of marriages have gotten weaker. Finkel's research reinforces my view of marriage and that it can be the best institution in the world but you have to choose wisely and you have to make an effort to be a great partner. I can't remember the last time I read a book and highlighted so much, so I'm just really excited to converse with him and share his findings. It may sound academic, but this is a really powerful and instructive book for single women looking for the ultimate relationship in the 21st century. His official bio reads as follows. Eli Finkel, author of The All or Nothing Marriage, is a professor at Northwestern University, where he has appointments in the psychology department in the Kellogg School of Management and holds the Martin J. and Patricia Koldike Outstanding Teaching Professorship. In his role as Northwestern's Relationships and Motiv- as director of Northwestern's Relationships and Motivation Lab, he's published 130 plus scientific papers and is a regular contributor to the op-ed page of the New York Times. The Economist has identified him as one of the leading lights in the realm of relationship psychology. And without further ado, my guest, Eli Finkel. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, as I said before we started recording, I really do enjoy your work, and I have frequently cited it on my blog since mainstream media has been uh, has picked up on your work. I'm delighted. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Now, just to start off, uh, since uh, you, you don't have your own show on Bravo, um, how how did you how did you get here? How did you become interested in this subject? Was it something you were always fascinated with, or is this something that developed in your 30s as a, as a married man? Um, yeah, I mean, I, it was something I was always fascinated with. Um, I remember discovering somewhere along the way, um, pretty much junior, senior year in college, that it was possible to make a living doing this stuff. And maybe this is, you know, maybe you had a similar sort of experience, but I always thought it was fascinating to to think about relationships, to try to understand them a little bit better. What makes two people more attracted to each other? How is it that we can resolve conflict more effectively? How can we sustain passion, you know, in the long run? Um, those are questions that, so far as I can tell, everybody's interested in. And somewhere along the way, I figured out that you can actually like make a living investigating those sorts of questions. And and from there, it was very direct. So, how old were you when that light bulb turned on? That um this wasn't just a, an interest or a, a hobby, but actually a career value. Is this st- stuff that you figured out in undergrad, grad school? Yeah. Um, it, w- it was young. I mean, it's, so I had it's sort of a weird background, which is I always thought I wanted to be an academic. Um, so this goes back to high school. It's sort of a weird, nerdy goal. But I always cherished the idea of a life of a mind and and having you know flexibility over your own schedule. I mean, there's a number of things that I thought were neat, which means that in contrast to, to, I think, a lot of people who go to college for more practical reasons, my only job in college was to figure out which stuff scintillated the most for me. Um, and so my freshman year, I took an intro to psych class and thought that was just fantastically interesting. And then my my junior year, I, I presume I was 20 or maybe 21, I took a class on um, social psychology. And one of the topics uh, in that class was called uh, relationships or attraction and relationships or something. And I figured out that there are people who are cited in that, right? There are people who have done the research that were cited in that textbook chapter. And I thought, how does one become one of those people? So it's part of the reason, uh, and and I'm always interested. I I know we're here to talk about uh, dating and relationships from a broader goal, but on a personal level, I find it interesting. It's the way you you're you're kind of a prodigy in this. The way Judd Apatow was interviewing Jerry Seinfeld when he was uh, fourteen years old, <laughs> to this really really young, and probably explains why twenty years later you're one of the leading guys in this in this field. I mean, is is there just a correlation between discovering this young and that passion and your body of work? You know, I, I mean, it's a flattering way of framing the question. I I honestly have never thought about this before. Um, 
the, the only thing I'll say that, that is possibly consistent with this idea is I went, I remember going to my 10 year high school reunion. So I was 28 and I was again, already on the faculty here at Northwestern and you know, everybody at your 10 year reunions, like, what are you doing? And a whole bunch of people were doing something I'd never heard of called hedge funds. And I, I yeah. still have no idea what that is. Um, and then, you know, I said, they said, what are you up to? And I said, well, I just took a job on, on, you know, I'm on the faculty at Northwestern and you know, well, Oh, interesting. What do you do? What do you teach? What do you study? And I would say relationships. And, and I kept getting this like knowing glance, like that, that people who knew me in high school thought, Oh man, that's, that's perfect. I, I, you know, it's, it's weird to see you end up with something that is so precisely tailored to what, our vision was of you. So I guess that's consistent with the idea that maybe more than the average person, I was really into this right from the start. That that sounds about right. When I was 28 and at my high school reunion, I was driving scripts around Hollywood for the sitcom Ellen. So oh, um, wow. <laughs> people thought that was a wow, but it was, it was, it was a terrible job driving around. I presume, I presume you were on a Vespa. Uh, to, to get uh, the, the latest script revisions to, uh, to celebrities. But it yeah. sounds glamorous. Yeah, so, so where did you get the idea, really the, the, the hook for this book, that modern marriage was unique from previous generations and that it required a book that specifically, specifically addressed the, you know, where we are in the 21st century? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm delighted with the questions you're asking. These aren't the sorts of questions I, I usually get. So um, I had been doing this stuff for a long time, so I'm 42 now, so at least since I started grad school when I was 22, I've been doing research on relationships, but but by no means would I have ever identified as a marriage expert. So I, I did a lot of research on initial attraction. We did work on speed dating. We did work on online dating. We did a whole bunch of work on forgiveness. So we were interested in ongoing relationships. And some of us, some of the studies we ran happened to use married couples, but I wasn't really interested in, in marriage as an institution. And somewhere, I don't know, call it four years ago, I, I wanted to, to develop a better understanding of of marriage and how it's changed over time. And I had a thesis that turned out to be really wrong. Actually, it turned out to be two things. One is it turned out to be obvious and everybody knew it already. And the second is it turned out to be wrong. Um, the thesis was that that marriage is really struggling. So, so we're overburdening this one relationship, this one institution with more and more demands, right? So I need you to be everything for me. And you, you, you sometimes cringe when you listen to wedding vows about you're going to be my best friend and I'm going to love you forever. And I'm never going to do, I mean, it's like the amount that we expect of this one relationship is just astonishing. And I thought, you know, that's probably problematic because I also knew at that time, so this is again, maybe four years ago, that we're actually investing less solo time with our spouse than we did say 40 years ago. So if you compare data from 1975 to data from 2003, you find that the amount of alone time people had with their spouse was substantially higher in the 70s. And yet we're just asking more and more while investing less and less. And so the, the working title of the book was the, the freighted marriage. That is, we're just throwing more and more and more responsibility and obligation onto this one relationship while not investing sufficiently to make that work. As I started looking around, I realized that that idea was not particularly new. And as I said, I also realized that it was wrong um, because I went back a long way. I, I focused specifically on, on marriage in America. And it turns out that there are profound ways in which we're asking much less of our marriage than, than people did in the past. Um, and we're just insensitive to that because these things happen over the course of enough generations that we don't notice it, but, but go back, say, 200 years. So, so here's an example that I find useful. So Abraham Lincoln was born about 200 years ago. He was born in 1809. And when he was... Uh, he was the second kid. There was a third kid who died in infancy. And when Abraham was nine, his mother died. And while he was still a teenager, his only remaining sibling died while giving birth to a stillborn child. Now, I don't tell that story just so that we have sympathy for Abraham Lincoln, although that's a reasonable response, but, but because that's not that rare of a story, right? In the early 1800s or, or before then and to some degree after then, life was precarious. It was immensely fragile and people didn't stand on their altar. They didn't stand at the wedding vow moment and say, you know, you complete me, right? It was a much more pragmatic era where literally marriage was about food, clothing, shelter, survival. They literally were creating the light by building the candles. They were creating the warmth by building their log cabins. Um, and it took two people to make life work and to build a family like that. And it wasn't until later that, that we were able to survive independently. And as we were able to survive independently, we asked less in those economic pragmatic ways and much more in more psychological, emotional ways. 
And um, I mean, you you cited you cited uh, you know back in 1975, couples spent more time together. Um, is it because we've become a generation of helicopter parents? Because again, I you know, I grew up I grew up partially. I'm only a few years older than you. I grew up in, in the 70s, and I certainly felt my parents were attentive. But perhaps uh, my wife and I are are you know again I, I I'm less likely to throw my kids in front of the TV for four hours than my mom was. Yeah, that's too bad. It's a bummer for you. Um, but <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, the the brief answer is yes. And and actually, I threw a word in there that I, I wanted to make sure your listeners heard, which is less time alone together. So it isn't really so much that, that spouses are spending less time together. They're spending less time alone together. And I do think it is in large part because, um, you know, after people got scared about kidnappings and so forth, there was less of the, you know, just open the back door and come back in, you know, four hours yeah. parenting and less in terms. And also because we really, especially um, people with college degrees these days are immensely invested in our um, children's happiness and success. So they, they have uh, four different activities after school and we help them with their homework more than, than used to be the case. Um, so there's no doubt that, that the amount that we're investing in our children is, is a great thing. I, I don't want to sound judgy about it, but I do think that it comes at the cost of some amount of the investment that we could be making in the marriage. I, I mean, co-parenting. I, I think you nailed it. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, mean I, I joke. I mean, I, I might've talked to my wife for four minutes yesterday. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, co-parenting, it's not that co-parenting can't be a meaningful way to, to connect with your spouse, but it certainly isn't the way that we used to connect with each other before the kids came. And it certainly isn't hot. Um, and it certainly isn't a discussion of, of you know, the meaning of self-development in Dostoevsky novels, um, right? There's, there's a, a way of interacting with you and your spouse and your eight and four-year-old that doesn't necessarily prioritize the cultivation of the marital bond in particular. And one question that I think all of us should be asking, all of us who, who are, are married and have children, or at least in a significant relationship and have children, is even if we primarily care about the well-being of the children, might the children benefit from an hour extra neglect from us if we're reorienting that neglect toward the cultivation of, of the marriage or the relationship. I, I think there's a pretty good case to be made that one of the best things that we can do for our kids is to cultivate, cultivate the strongest bond with our spouse that we can. I, I, I agree completely. And I, I remember reading a parenting book, kind of looking for it on my shelf, um, not seeing it from here, but I, I, I first became a dad and they talked about the difference between child-centered parenting and parent-centered parenting. Mm, child-centered parenting is the kid is the sun and the moon and the stars, and whatever the kid wants, you hop to attention and you get get for the kid. And we vowed we were not going to be that couple. And um, again, to our credit, I, you know, I joked about my wife and I talking for four minutes the other day um, when we both just had a bunch of stuff to do. But we're one of the few couples that I know whose social life hasn't suffered. We have like a roster of ba babysitters and go out all the time, it, probably almost too much to the point that it stresses us out because yeah. I work from home, she's a stay-at-home mom. It's very important for us to find some social life, find some excitement, mm -hmm. go to the theater, um, as opposed to, you know, work kids, work kids like this, you know, a, a conveyor belt that leads to nowhere. I mean, you are you are certainly bucking the, the empirical trends. I mean, you, you saw in the book, um, we have, you know, there's a lot of charts in that book that talk about yes. trends, trends over time. And, and um, one of them is, you know, how much time do we get with our um, other significant others without our spouse being there? And we've just, we do way less of that, which is part of the story I was talking about earlier about freighting the marriage, about asking more and more of this, this one um, social relationship. In this sense, my initial thinking wasn't wrong. Like we are indeed asking a whole lot more of the marriage and many of us are, are not investing the time. Um, so the major edit really wasn't that, that the initial thinking was wrong in a, in, a, in a fundamental way. It was, wait a minute, if we, if we think differently about the marriage in ways that I, I hope we'll talk about here, it offers opportunities, it affords new ways of connecting that, that didn't exist, say for Abraham Lincoln's parents. Yes. So let's get into terminology from your book because uh, you, you talk about uh, essentially Maslow 
uh, and correlate that to what you call high altitude needs and getting more oxygen to sustain a marriage. What do you mean by, for a, a lay person who hasn't read your book, what do you mean by high altitude needs and the need for more oxygen in a marriage? I mean, this is why podcasts are so much more fun than the morning shows, is you can actually get into this stuff. So the 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 ideas that I was talking about a little bit ago, when I realized that that I was wrong in concluding that we're just asking more and more of our marriage in 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 a in a simple way, right? That that there are major ways in which we're asking less of the marriage. Is I reviewed the the history and the sociology of marriage, which again I'm a psychologist; it's not my main discipline, and so it was very enlightening to read these other fields, economics as well. And what you see is that there's basically three major eras of marriage. One is basically from the the colonial era up until around 18, 1850 or so, and that's what I was describing, where marriage was really about basic survival. I mean, I mean, really low level needs. And for your listeners who will be familiar with and remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you'll remember that at the bottom are the physiological and safety needs. And so marriage was really oriented toward the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy back in that era. But then a number of things happen where, where by around 1850 or so, people start to set different priorities for their marriage. Of course, marriage is still an economic institution. It is today, um, but it has different elements. And, and by the mid-1800s, by around 1850 or so, no sort of self-respecting middle-class um, American admitted to marrying for anything other than love, right? That was what you wanted to do. And this was the new model, the new vision. And, and we all wanted to marry for love. Um, and for those of your listeners who have Maslow's hierarchy seared into their brain, they might remember that love and belonging needs are in the middle of Maslow's hierarchy. But what I found especially interesting is, is if that was 1850, we can fast forward again to what, what I think everybody affectionately knows as the 60s. So call it 1965 or so. And you see there's another transition. So if the first one was this pragmatic era toward the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, and the second one was this love-based era toward the middle of Maslow's hierarchy, you see... Uh, an, another ascent up Maslow's hierarchy where you see esteem and self-actualization needs at the top of his hierarchy. And, and around the 1960s and certainly up until today, we're in this third era where, yes, people are still oriented toward love. It's not like they, they stopped caring about love and the middle level needs on Maslow's hierarchy, but they increasingly care about self-actualization or what you might call self-expression. And so these days, in contrast to call it the 1950s, you could hear somebody say, look, I, I love the man. He's a good man and a good father, and I respect him, but I'm not growing as a person, and I'm not going to spend the next 30 years of my life feeling stagnant. And that today is is something that we accept. And I think it's probably all else equal good that we accept that sort of way of thinking about a marriage. But but it basically tells a story about how if you track American history over time, you, you're basically tracking the bottom to the top of Maslow's hierarchy. I thought it was useful when talking about the hierarchy to, to think in terms of, of, a, of a mountain. So we can think of a, of a triangle, but we could also think of the Maslow's hierarchy in terms of a major mountain. And the reason why I like that is, is it affords a couple metaphors that are useful, one of which is mountain climbing, right? So, so the idea is, well, you can make an ascent up, up this mountain, Mount Maslow, whatever we're going to call it. You can make this, this ascent but you certainly wouldn't want to do that without the right tools. And ideally, you might have some supplemental oxygen. And the idea of supplemental oxygen is, all right, well, if you want to hang out there and look for your marriage to, you know, help you in your voyage of self-discovery and personal growth, that's fine. I'm not going to tell you not to do that. But you wouldn't want to do it on the cheap. You wouldn't want to do it without having conversations together, without thinking seriously about things that really matter to both of you, without really working hard to facilitate each other's goal pursuits and so forth. And so the idea is you can reside up there if you want in the self-actualization region, or at least for some periods of time, you can ride up there, reside up there at the top of this mountain and, and look to your marriage to help you do that. But really only if you're investing significant amounts of, of resources to make sure that you can actually achieve those things. Um. Uh, I love it. And, and again, I think it, uh, it it might be a little bit of chicken and egg, but it seems to be validated by what we see, and certainly in, in, in my sphere, uh, which is that there are there are great marriages. And, and I, I know I come from a very narrow slice of life, you know, uh, upper middle class people who do have those kind of lives that they, they, they support each other and they challenge each other and they're they're always changing and it's, it's, it's the opposite of, of, of stagnant. And 
I feel like it's almost like there's a lot of people who've got their nose pressed up against the glass, wondering how they can get that marriage. Um, yeah, I, I and mean, there's a bunch of other people who've turned away, and that, that's that's this sort right. of my next question. Um, right. There's you know there's uh, the men going their own way movement, and then there's you know, a, a, no shortage of women who are completely fed up with men, um, sometimes rightfully so. And we talk about this, you know the death of marriage. Yet the positive effects of marital quality on happiness have doubled from 1980 to, 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 to today. Um, in other words, people who are happily married are more happily married than ever before. Marriage is more important to one's happiness than ever before. To what do you attribute this? Is it that we're so busy and isolated that marriage has just replaced friends and community? Yes, I think that is one of the reasons. So, so as we spend less time with our broader social networks, our, our more extended family, and we invest more in this, this nuclear family, our spouse and our children, the extent to which the, the marriage works well is going to have a profound impact on our overall quality of life. Also, um, it's, it's worth noting that marriage is not essential these days, right? Like people can live totally um, fulfilling life. Not, not only can they literally get enough food to eat and enough shelter, which was tricky in 1800 and isn't really necessarily tricky today, at least again, at least for the large majority of Americans. Um, but you can, you know, there are all sorts of other options that the judgment, the, the, the social stigma of not being married has heavily dissipated. I'm not saying it's gone, but it's, it's much less than it was in say the 1950s, for example. So marriage is optional. More people, um, you know, people believe that divorce is a reasonable option for uh, a marriage that's that's really faltering or has fundamental incompatibilities. These are new ideas relative to, again, the 1950s or anything before that time. Um, so yes, the quality of the marital bond today is is essential among married people. But I think one other implication is a lot of people just bail on on a marriage that isn't that fulfilling. And again, I don't I don't live in a in a judgmental world where I, I would say, if your marriage isn't going well, you know, you need to tough it out. I certainly would say everybody's marriage is not going to go well for some periods of time. And if you give up easy, you're probably giving up something of value. Um, but because we can bail, because that's an option these days in a way that it didn't used to be. Um, and there are other ways of living fulfilling lives in a way that used to be much more difficult, maybe especially for women. Um, it, it's, you know, the, the quality of the marital bond, the quality of the marital bond among those who are marrying and staying married is especially important. And, and when the marital bond starts to suffer, some people take, uh, find an escape hatch. Um, I had a therapist uh, once who, he, he gave me this real simple metaphor uh, that is germane to this conversation. Uh, he said, he said, he said, Evan, you're like a kid who builds, takes the, the vertical blocks and tries to put them on top of each other mm. to make the tallest building possible. Mm. But instead of making a, a pyramid with a really wide foundation at the base. Fascinating. And so you put all your effort into relationships and work and you neglect friends and you neglect family and you neglect your spiritual life and you neglect charity and you neglect your health. Right. So you go all in on these two subjects, and if one of them goes bad, if your work is going bad, and if your if your uh, relationship is going bad, everything's in the tank because you've got nothing else going on. Yeah, and I thought that was it was accurate then, and it remains somewhat accurate now. We go all in, thus the all or nothing marriage. We go all in on marriage. I'm really fortunate that I have a great wife, and I do this for a living, so I'm hopefully a little bit more conscious than the average guy about putting in and making the marriage work. But I could not suppose that that describes most people's marriages. Right. I mean, that's an interesting idea. There's actually a, an idea in, in my home discipline of social psychology called self-complexity. Um, and the idea is that, is that um, people vary in how many different major elements they have in their self-concept. Um, and there's no right or wrong way to do that. Like some people's like, I, it's interesting. I'm actually reading, uh, I'm currently reading the new biography, Walter Isaacson biography of, of Leonardo da Vinci. He's an interesting case. You can contrast him with Michelangelo who was, you know, completely, um, focused on, on his, his sculpting, right? He was just an extremely focused person when his sculpting wasn't going well, he was traumatized, um, by that. And, uh, 
And it's a similar idea, right? If you have five or six or seven things that are really fundamental to you and you, you know, something struggling a bit, you have a whole lot more foundation, a whole lot more to fall back on and feel pretty good. If there's really only one or two things that are crucial to you um, and things start to falter, which of course they will, like your job, you know, your marriage, like nothing's just going to sort of like be smooth sailing the whole way for 50 years, 60 years. Um, And so, yeah, having a little bit of, of, uh, having a, a more complex self-concept where there are more things that we care about, be it a, a hobby or, um, yeah, time, a, a broader social network or whatever. It, it is a very strong buffer for times when when some other things that are important to us might be going poorly. So greater gender equality, right, yeah. is good for marriage, has been proven to be good for marriage. Uh, more satisfying marriages, more sexually fulfilling marriages, lower risk of divorce, in those marriages where guys help out with housework and child rearing per Stephanie Kuntz. Is there any downside to that, what would seem to be an, you know, an obviously positive trend to men and women being, being too similar? You mentioned in your book that women were becoming more assertive and masculine at a faster pace than men were becoming more nurturant and that there might be some sort of disconnect. Right. Have, we, have we pushed the needle too far in one direction? Uh, or is this, you know, a, a, a trend where essentially there will be no gender roles anymore? It'll be, it'll all be antiquated. I mean, to some degree, we're we're getting to sort of social criticism and morality, which is a little bit outside of my field. But I mean, the, the context in which this comes up in the book is the the economist, the Harvard economist Claudia Golden, uh, talks about what she calls the grand gender convergence. And what she says is of all the major social trends that have happened over the last 50 or 100 years, the, the biggest by far is the convergence of roles between men and women. Now, she's not deluded enough to think that everything's exactly the same for men and women today, that women earn the same money for the same pay, that, that there's no stereotypes and so forth, or, there's, you know, or that there might not be any differences at all. But one of the major things is, is there used to be a, a widespread assumption of separate spheres, that, that women belonged in the home and that that was fundamentally who they were with their, their sort of nurturance and perhaps piety and submissiveness. That was woman. That's what woman is. And man is um, more assertive and, and dominant and his sphere is the, the marketplace or, or you know, commerce more generally. Um, and I believe that it is pretty much impossible to achieve a successful marriage today, right? So if, if you want to adopt the, the current approach to marriage, and I don't think everybody needs to, but if you want to adopt this idea that, yes, we'd, love to, we'd like to love each other, but we also want to promote each other's personal growth and, and um, self-development, I think it's hard to do that if you live in a different sphere. So if, you're a, if you work full-time and have never changed a diaper and your wife... Um, you know, is, is always up, is up in, at night with a newborn and has never really had anything resembling a job or at least a career, how much insight can you guys really have into each other's daily experiences? Like, like how much insight can you have into the, the, the anguish that that's caused when, when the newborn starts crying at three thirty only four minutes after he fell asleep. And this is the 70th consecutive night of disrupted sleep. If, if you've never been the one to wake up with the newborn and, and how much, how much empathy, how much understanding can you have for your husband who yet again got passed over for a promotion and is starting to feel shame and humiliation if you've never really experienced something like that? And and so from my perspective, if we want the sort of marriages where our spouse really understands us and can help to support us, it would sure be nice if, if not, not necessarily that they're identical or live identical sorts of lives and or work in the same field or anything like that, but at least have some sense of what it's like to live in this sphere of life. And it was pretty hard to do that in the past. And these days, you know, the vast majority of certainly of of middle class people, the vast majority of men and women have a career, like, you know, not necessarily forever. Some take time off when the kids are young and so forth, but, but they have a career and the vast majority of men, I mean, you know, people like you and I, Evan, I, I presume we both have changed a heavy, heavy proportion of the diapers. Um, but two generations forward, my guess is our grandparents did zero. And and so we just have greater insight into each other these days than we did in the past. And, and that's conducive to success if what we're looking for from a marriage is help in pursuing a, a greater understanding of, of who we are and how to make the best version of ourselves. Um, yeah, you know, again, I, I actually agree wholeheartedly with everything you said. And, and, and that was even baked into the question. 
the idea that gender equality has proven to be good for marriage, for these higher altitude marriages. Hey, hey Evan, uh, Evan, Evan, let me interject. The question which you said may or may not, may not be in your sphere is whether the reduction in gender polarity has unintended deleterious effects, right, when the woman doesn't see the man as the man of the house anymore because she makes more money than he is. And the uh, woman doesn't uh, admire the man like he wants so deeply to be admired anymore. Do, is there some sort of downstream effects to gender equality? Because I see them on a, on a micro level talking to people, but I haven't studied it on a macro level. Let me offer a couple of thoughts on this. Again, I'm a little beyond um, data I'm familiar with, but I, I'll offer a couple thoughts. Uh, one is I'd love for your your listeners to know something that I think you know, which is it wasn't always the case that egalitarian marriages were better adjusted. It used to be, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that highly educated women had a really difficult time on the marriage market. Um, that was yeah, the, that, that, that famous false, what was it, Time or Newsweek Yeah. Stuff that you're going to get hit by lightning before right. you get married after 40. Right, right, which was never really true. But there was an element of truth to it then. But but it looks like as we have settled into this new model of marriage, the one that I really discuss in the book, it's it's in that sort of social context where, where this um, greater convergence of social roles, this greater orientation toward equality tends to be associated with happier marriages. If, if you're if you're looking for different sorts of things from your marriage, then then you may well not benefit as much from this. But but with regard to with regard to the the issue that you're raising of you know does she stop seeing him as a man or or is she not she not um, sufficiently feminine for him? I think those are I think those are totally fascinating issues. I do think there are potential threats to the. I do think there are potential potential dangers there. But I'm just really interested in, in like evolving definitions of um, masculinity and femininity. Sure. Um, in particular, evolving um, definitions of, of masculinity, right? So can, it, it's been hard. One of the reasons why, why the working class is struggling so much is that the, the traditional working class jobs are disappearing, like machinist, right? Those yeah. jobs are just through automation or offshoring, those things are just disappearing. And it's been really hard to get men to, to take so-called pink collar jobs like nurse's assistant, right? Home health aid, right? These are the growth industries and it's been hard to get men to do it. So I do think, I do think we're going to have to have some type of reckoning, particularly about the nature of masculinity. And to some degree, this is going to enter the bedroom. I mean, I, I think we're seeing this th with with the hashtag Me Too movement. Some of these are, are very, very clear cases of, of um, criminal misconduct. And the recent case with Aziz Ansari is is interesting. He was. It looks like, if we can believe both reports, it looks like he was, you know, sexually pushy in a way that I, I think most of us these days view as as probably inappropriate at at, at the very least and perhaps gross. Um, but there's no doubt that that's what men were supposed to do not that long ago. And even if you watch the television shows that you and I, and, and even people younger than us grew up with, you see a whole lot of the sorts of behaviors like that, I, you know, like Aziz Ansari did. And, and the result is often positive that the woman is often pleased that, that he's been, you know, assertive. We, we could actually call it romantic comedies. Um, and so there, there, there needs to be, I think, a fairly broad reckoning with how we're going to think about masculinity and femininity. Do we want a world that eliminates masculinity and femininity and, and tries to act as if um, there are no differences between the two sexes? I don't think that's going to be the end result of all this. But, but where we're going to go is, I think, anybody's guess right now. I agree. And uh, we could do an entire hour on that. But I'm going to keep, uh, keep the focus yeah. on your book. Because, um, you know, you've opened up a can of worms that I love to explore, but yeah. um, this really is about the all or nothing marriage. So can you describe a happiness based marriage versus a meaning based marriage? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So so one of the ideas I really struggled with in the book is um, what are the consequences of pursuing personal fulfillment through your marriage? Um, and it, it turns out that, that that's a question that, that we don't ask that much these days because everybody is is fulfilling is pursuing personal fulfillment through the marriage. But if you adopt a historical perspective, you can see these changes occurring where people are are focusing less on the obligations of marriage and more on an aspiration for personal fulfillment through the marriage. And you can see these social commentaries. They're, they're really interesting when you read what people 
were saying, social commentators, social scientists were saying at the time about what happens when you start to prioritize personal fulfillment. Um, and there were a number of people who argued that once you define marriage, marital success in terms of personal fulfillment, you've pretty much destroyed marriage because everybody's going to go through at least substantial periods where the marriage is really difficult. If the goal is just sort of to, to be happy and, and um, fulfilled in the moment, like why would you stick through that? And I, and I was able to come up with at least what for me was a good reconciliation of, of the changes that we've seen. So I, I actually agree with the social commentaries, right? I agree with people who say, look, if really what you want from marriage is, is you know, just, just happiness, then you're maybe not going to get that. And that's sort of hard to reconcile with marital commitment, with a sense of obligation. But what if we focus less on, on happiness, it, it, let's define it here, as, as the pursuit of, of a, a sort of pleasurable um, you know, existence where you sort of feel good about yourself. And let's say we contrast that. And, and by the way, um, psychologists and, and philosophers often call that hedonic well-being. But let's say we contrast it with what what psychologists and, and philosophers, going back to Aristotle, talk, talk about eudaimonic well-being, which is something closer to meaning or purpose, right? So, so, so there are two ways of pursuing the good life, and they're both valid, right? So, so you want to have pleasurable existence. You want to have interesting things happen. All of us want that stuff, but we also want to have a deeper sense of meaning and purpose and fulfillment in our lives. And it turns out that, that what I realized when I was writing the book is you can actually eliminate the incompatibility between the pursuit of personal fulfillment and marital commitment. If the type of fulfillment you want from your marriage is primarily eudaimonic, is primarily oriented toward meaning and purpose and fulfillment, because now you can define a, a meaningful life in large part by finding somebody who's compatible with you and working hard to make sure that relationship works over time. And so if we approach marriage from a from a how can we we build a, a meaningful sense of fulfillment through the relationship more than how do we sort of feel good and pleasured and happy all the time, the odds that we can sustain high levels of, of marital commitment increase substantially. I, I think that was wonky, but well said. Um, <laughs> And, and it feels to me, and again, I may be simplifying it too much, it feels like a, a we versus me. And I can only you know, think through my, my, my narrow experience as guy's been married for 10 years. Um, when, when I was first married, I was you know, single for 35 years. I was very used to being single and thinking for myself and being independent as probably any single person who's, who's listening right now would, would feel. Um, where I stand in my life right now is, and again, I use this this word probably incorrectly, is wonderfully codependent. Mm -hmm. um, I I would be lost without my wife, and I kind of love that uh, the, the 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 thing that we've created together this this life, this world, these children. Um, it, it's it's we're such a, a wonderful core nucleus that there's there's so much so much more meaning in that than whatever I was doing when I was single, which of course is not to demonize single people, but the marriage gives me meaning. The kids give me meaning. And I think um, you experience these moments of joy with that. It's just very different, you know, listening to your daughter read for the first time or watching your son hit a baseball for the first time and getting teary eyed about it versus, you know, Okay, well, I I went to a you know I went to a fancy hotel and I had a great cocktail and I hooked up that night, which is what my life was before. <laughs> you, you know why? Well, hey, I mean, it sounds like it sounds like but sounds like both of those lives are good. They're, um, they're good in their own way, but like it's 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 one would seem to be uh, more hedonistic anyway, and the other one is definitely more meaning based because I, I think that's right. I mean, dad who has to coach the kids' basketball team isn't always fun, right? Not adult fun. But there, there's something deeper behind it. And again, I, I, I don't want to sound remotely dismissive of single people or people who don't have children. Yeah. Um, I just I, I'm trying to wrestle with happiness versus meaning. So I um, you make it sound for you and I and I, actually, I believe you, but you make it sound like there's very little perceived effort or sacrifice involved in, in building this, this wonderful thing that, that you, you guys have been fortunate enough to build. My sense is that most people, or at least many, experience a, a sense of sacrifice. That is, 
somebody cute comes along and is flirting and you feel like, oh, right? Like that, that's costly to me to have to have given up those things. Sure. Um, or, you know, a, a sense of, of freedom, right? I mean, a lot of people experience uh, lifelong commitment as, as sort of cage-like. It's scary for them. They feel trapped and they don't understand, you know, why is it that, that somebody has to own me, right? And so I think for a lot of us, um, to some degree, including myself, there, there's uh, there's costs that come along with with being married. Um, that yes, the 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 first time your daughter reads something to you is a spectacular moment. But you look, let's face facts: those moments in parenting, in my experience, are are few and far between. And I love my kids a tremendous amount, but there's a lot of drudgery that that goes into parenting, and those feel like sacrifices to me too. That sure. there are other things I could be doing with my time, or there are other women I could meet, and so forth. And, and I think a lot of us have have a mentality that's that's similar to that. And I don't I don't judge. I am one of those people. I certainly don't judge those people for having that. It's really only to the extent that you you feel like you're building to something bigger. And yes, it's it's I think partly we versus me. But even if we were just to focus on me versus me. There's a what version of me do I want? What is there a version of me that that I want to build and that I respect and admire? And I, I think to the degree that the the version that we're trying to build is is a one oriented towards self improvement and um, goal achievement, then then it becomes much easier and more enjoyable um, to to tolerate the restrictions of marriage and and to enjoy the the better parts. And, and I don't think, uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, and I don't think it's necessarily an either or, right? Um, uh, I want to just first acknowledge what you said about uh, people's perception of marriage. And since you don't know anything about about me, I'm, I'm, I'm presuming what I try to do as a dating and relationship coach specifically for women is help them choose so wi- wisely in their marriages that they get, at least what I perceive, to be the marriage that I have. Uh, I, I don't talk about marriages as being work. I talk about marriages being easy. When you choose the right partner, it's like a, a foot fitting in a shoe. It either fits or it doesn't. And if you have to work that hard to keep your foot in the shoe, you should probably buy a different pair of shoes. So it's not to say that there aren't challenges in every marriage or challenges of parenting, but the default for me is 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 you know, 90, 95% positive, and then you negotiate with the five to 10% there are other people who have marriages that have different kind of percentages. So I, to me, I could get the personal growth goal things because my wife is not a growth goal, self-help anything person. She is consciously static. So I read tons of information. I have a, a, a business that I'm always working to try to optimize. I'm an optimizer, try to be a better father, husband, parent, the whole thing. So I, I'm driven by data and information and personal growth. And when I leave the office, my personal goals are aside. And it's all about watching, you know, planting this garden and watching it grow, uh, you know, thriving with my wife and watching the kids flourish. Um, So I, I feel like I get to have both. And I don't think that's impossible. So I think everybody sort of works backwards from what, from their point of view, your, your, your book which again, I love, is written from your point of view. Um, my work is through my point of view. Yeah. And it's not that one is be- better than the other. Um, I just feel like people can, it's people could have something close to resembling it all if they I... can understand what trade-offs are worth making. And that's that's where my work lies is, you know, what's more important to you, a guy who's five foot 10 or a guy right. who's a good listener, right? right. What, so, what trade-offs are we going to make? Here, I think here I think would be a way of of, of interpreting what you're saying. I, I think through the lens of the book because I, I agree that that it seems like there's a difference of of emphasis, but not really an incompatibility. Because what you said earlier is that you and your wife have an outstanding social life, right? You and I, as I understand it, it some of that stuff is together, right? Some of that socializing without but the kids. Most of it is together. We have a few things separate, but mostly she's my favorite person. We hang out all the time, and we're both. Uh, extroverts who who just happen to uh, be at home all day. So right, right. So 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 from the perspective of of the book, from the perspective of this you know supply and demand idea that that you can you know try to try to um, have one of these spectacular marriages, but you don't want to do it on the cheap. You need 
you need some, um, you know, to, to be investing in the marriage. It sounds like you guys are able to invest heavily in the marriage in ways that, that you find really fun. So I, I view you as, as, as very fortunate. And I, I hope that, that, you know, your success rate with your clients is extremely high because, because to the degree that, that the investment that is required for a successful marriage today feels like pleasure, um, that's like just, just the absolute win. And, and certainly, um, you know, we have a lot of that in our marriage. Uh, and I think a lot of people do, but I think a lot, we, and a lot of other people also feel like there's some sense of, of sacrifice and work involved as well. Sure. Um, and, and I certainly, I, I certainly wouldn't want to, um, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if you and I would, would see totally eye to eye. I, I certainly want to, wouldn't want to pass along a message that says something like, you know, if you're going to have to work at your marriage, you know, that's a problem. I, I don't think you would say that despite the, the shoe fit metetaphor. I, yeah, no, I, think- I, I, I agree with you, Eli. And I just want to, I want to, I'll just put a, uh, we'll put a button on this and, and, and move on. I, I start from the place of, is this fundamentally easy? Does this person love me, accept me? Can I be myself? Can I relax? Right. People yeah. who are in anxious marriages where they're always afraid of saying the wrong thing, or, you know, it's going to turn into a fight and a screaming match and a silent treatment. People stay in those relationships because of sunk cost, because of chemistry, because of money, because of fear. Right. Mm-hmm. I really do think that, you know, and there's been no shortage of studies that talk about you're better off marrying your, your best friend. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean in every single situation you get along with your best friend. It doesn't mean you always agree with your best friend. So I would use the word effort. Right? Mm-hmm. A good marriage takes effort. And I do put a lot of effort into making my marriage yeah. a success. But it does yeah. not feel like work the same way that when you're at your job, there's sometimes your job feels like work, but for the most part, you should enjoy your job and it should, you, you got to put in some effort to succeed at what you do, but it doesn't feel like that onerous work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like that. That's a good way of saying it. Um, and so this is a, a pretty good segue to what might be my favorite part of your, of your book, the section about marriage hacks, right? Tiny ways to improve your marriage and specifically the one about our spouse accurately perceiving our authentic self and the one there were two that that really struck me that i highlighted um our spouse accurately perceiving our authentic self seeing us as we see ourselves and the one about assuming your partner has good intentions right giving the benefit of the doubt why is it important for us to be seen as ourselves and why is it important to give our partners the benefit of the doubt um, let me just give a very brief, brief, brief background on this. I mean, the, the last third of the book, so I, I think the book is generally oriented toward helping people understand what is marriage today. And, and I think it's, I think it's super useful for single people who are trying to figure out, you know, how should I approach this these days and, and how can I set my priorities and figure out the, you know, who's a, who's a good match for me. Um, what I do in the last third of the book is, is I say, all right, for those of us who are, who are in a relationship, if, if the ideas that we presented early on are correct, how can we make our, our relationship as strong as possible? And, and we work through three possibilities. One is how can we sort of invest more significantly in the relationship? Uh, another is how can we ask less of the relationship? And, and you're talking specifically about, about this love hacks chapter that I have on, are there quick and dirty things we can do that aren't going to make a terrible marriage, a great marriage, but, but that could certainly help around the edges, especially when we're you know too busy or otherwise occupied to, to find the time together that we would like. Um, so, for example, the second one you listed there is is to view um, your partner's behavior more generously. So we tend to believe that we see the world in, as as a, a set of facts, right? That that's like this thing happened, and here's what it means. But we don't realize that the and here's what it means part is enormously important because. Facts are, they are facts. I'm certainly not a post-fact world, but what we want to know about our partner's behavior isn't so much the facts. It's what was the motivation underlying the fact. So the partner showed up late for the third consecutive evening or, um, the, you know, your partner kept a secret that, or didn't keep a secret that you thought was important, right? And, and you can offer a range of explanations, a range of, of meanings and interpretations for why your partner does, um, your partner did what he or she did. And it turns out that how you feel about the behavior depends a whole lot more on your perceptions, on your meaning-making process than on the objective behavior itself. So, so take the late example. It could be that your partner's late because he's an inconsiderate jerk, 
right? That's a, one interpretation you could make. Maybe it's reasonable. Another interpretation you could make is, I know he's been incredibly preoccupied with that deadline and I, I'm just going to let it slide. And it turns out that, that how angry and distressed you feel by the transgression and more importantly, how fulfilled you feel in the marriage is heavily influenced by your tendency to be generous in the way you try to interpret your partner's behavior. And the only thing I would say is, there's some risk in doing that and being generous because it sets you up for exploitation, right? If you're chronically giving the benefit of the doubt, it makes you vulnerable to the possibility that your partner is really trying to be mean or take advantage or be inconsiderate. What I would advise people to do is say, do I believe my partner is a generally decent, kind person who cares about me? If the answer to that is yes, I would urge all of us to err on the side of kindness, Right? If all of us are able to approach things and interpret things in a more generous sort of way, knowing that, yeah, we won't always get our, our share every time, the marriage will be better and we'll be happier and our partner will be happier. I just want to stand up and applaud. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I constantly talk about the, the, the concept of, uh, of generosity and trust. And I'll tell women, if, if, if he's your boyfriend, he signed up for the job <laughs> of wanting to please you. Right. So if he's making you upset, it's generally uh, an act of ignorance rather than an act of malice. Mm. That's I mean, that's kind. Right. And and usually that means that we approach things in a different way. So rather than approaching things and how could you do that again? Like what sort of like do you have no respect for me? It's more like, hey, I, I just want to let you know, like I know you didn't do this on purpose, but but that actually hurt my feelings when you said that or when you told something that I thought was a secret. It hurt my feelings, and I just want you to know because I know you didn't hurt me on purpose. And that like, is a much more effective way of yeah. communicating with a guy that doesn't escalate yes. the conversation, but you get to share your feelings. He gets yeah. to hear you and validate you. There's not, I mean, that's, you know, that's uh, relationship communication 101. And it's hard when you get triggered by perceived injustices. Mm -hmm. uh, but as you said, if you, if you think you chose a good man, there's little logic as to why he would try to hurt you. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's probably what about, the part about perceiving our authentic self. I, I remember I had a, a, a friend years ago who he we, we wrote comedy together and his girlfriend loved him because she thought he was he was sweet and he was cute. But she didn't think he was funny. And oh. it really, really bothered him because he thought he was funny. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember I remember this part of the book. Um, you know, it, it's interesting, right? So, so it's fairly straightforward to say that we want others to perceive us well, and particularly a, a significant other or a spouse. We'd like that person to have positive views of us. What I think we're less sensitive is, is to the fact that there's some idiosyncrasy. There's some individual differences in which qualities we really care about. And I think this is especially relevant for single people to, to, to figure out not only do do we sort of align, but is the version of me that you like the version of me that I like? And I'll, t I'll tell a, a story. So, so when I was a postdoc, so this is, I would have been 26 or 27, I had a, a reasonably serious girlfriend. And I remember one time we were, we were sort of goofing around. We were in bed and we were goofing around. And she said to me something like, like, why aren't you like this more? Like, I love this version of you that's like, that's like playful and goofy. And <laughs> honestly, that's like a compliment. There's no way to interpret that other than a compliment. And I understood it to be a compliment, but it left me chilly because I like goofy and playful too, but that's not the version of me that was really important, right? The version of me that I really cared about was, was serious and aspirational and wanting to build a career and make a difference in the world, right? And, and so what she said would have been the perfect thing to say to some other person. But <laughs> to me, I mean, look, this is why you should never date a relationship researcher. I think I said something like, oh, you're invalidating my ideal self. Um, but, but the idea is, yeah, there needs to be not only a sense of, of positivity, but a sense of, of matching. And until you get into those types of conversations where it's like, well, what is the version of me that you like the best? And it doesn't have to be explicit, but you pick up those sorts of things. Does that align with the version of me that I like the best? And sometimes it doesn't. Eli, do you mind running over a little bit? I know we allotted an hour. I got a, I got a little more I want to talk to you about, but I want to be respectful of your time. I, I do have a 12 o'clock. I could be a couple minutes late, probably. Okay, great. Um, what's the benefit? Just this uh, piggybacks off of the last question. What's the benefit of gratitude and positive shared experiences? And how can our listeners cultivate these more strongly in their relationships? 
Yeah, I mean, one thing that I was really excited about with with this book is I realized there's like 50 or 60 years of a field most people haven't heard of called relationship science. It's a multidisciplinary field where we've done this like experimental work where we've tried to understand how these relationships work. But mostly these are ideas that are cloistered in academic journals. And, and so the last third of the book is to bring these bring these to the public. And, I, and when I do in the book, I talk specifically like what, what exactly happened in these studies. So in one of the studies, um, let's take, uh, I don't remember which ones you asked. Can I take the the like novel and arousing, novel and exciting activities one? Is that interesting this, to you? Yeah, this is yours. I mean, I think the, the whole point is, you know, in a marriage where things can get stale, how do we cultivate gratitude yeah. and positive shared experiences and weave them into the narrative of our, of our marriage. Yeah. I mean, so, so here's one. I mean, this will give a feel for the, the, the sorts of the sorts of things I talk about in the books. So there's one, um, we do talk about a gratitude study that, that again, is, you know, randomly assigns people in relationships to one versus another way of thinking and, and it, it, you know, illustrates the, the, the power of gratitude. One of my favorites is a study that, that um, adds a little bit of, of interesting nuance to the idea that like date nights are good. Like there's no more obvious idea in this space than like try to have a date with your husband or a date with your boyfriend. Like those things are, are good ideas. And it's true that all else equal going on a date is better than not, not even going on a date. But, but are there different types of dates that are more helpful for different sorts of, of aspirations that you might have? So, so let's say that the issue in your marriage is we, we get along great. There's like no fighting really, or not much fighting really, but, but the passion is, is waning a little bit. That's like most good marriages have some amount of this problem. Sure. And so there's, there's a study that I love that, 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 um, people came in, there's, there's three experimental conditions. Um, one condition is a control condition. There's a second condition that says, Hey, one of the interesting things that, that science has discovered is that in engaging in like comfortable activities together is really beneficial for the relationship. Over the next 72 hours, please try to engage in as many comfortable activities together as you can. People talked about reruns of Friends, whatever. They did those sorts of things. But there's a third condition. So the control condition was the first one. The comfortable activities condition is the second one. There's a third condition that, that has people engaging in exciting activities. So rather than doing things that are comfortable for both of you, do things that are outside the box for both of you, things that you normally wouldn't do. And people listed things like ballroom dancing uh, lessons and so forth. And it turns out that, that relative to people in the control condition, people in both the comfort condition and the uh, you know, novel, exciting activities condition felt closer with their partner. But what I find interesting is that when it comes to sexual desire, the positive effects were limited to that last condition. So yes, it turns out that watching friends reruns together versus not watching friends reruns together makes you feel a little bit closer to your spouse. But going ballroom dancing not only makes you feel closer to your spouse, but also brings back a little bit of the fire. And and the the state of the science has gotten to the point where we now can can offer very sort of concrete, specific guidance in that sort of way. It makes perfect sense because um, uh, it, it it really it, it harkens back to the times of courtship when you're trying things on for size, and that's what you're doing. You're you're going out and doing new things together, right. uh, and then you get into you know your your I hate to even call it a rut, but you, you know, you, you, you build your life, you have your system and your system works. And sometimes right. you gotta, you know, you gotta jolt it with some outside energy to keep it fresh. That's right. Exactly. So why do you, and we'll, we'll leave off here. Why do you, John Gottman and little old me advocate for the good enough marriage? And why do single people so often feel that this is tantamount to settling? Are they misguided? if they think that their partner should fulfill their every need, is excitement too much to ask? Yeah, I I love this question. I mean, this is basically the question I wrestle with throughout the entire book. And and what I think is interesting and eye-opening for readers when they, they make their way through the book is they realize, wow, like I have this vision of how marriage works, but I didn't realize how sort of culturally and historically embedded it was. And once you have that insight, it's a really big insight, you start to realize there's choice here. I get to decide what it is that I'm seeking versus not seeking. I think it's great that a lot of people today are, are looking to the top of that mountain and really aspirational in what they're looking for in their marriage. What they should realize is that puts within reach a level of marital fulfillment that was out of reach when people weren't even trying for those sorts of things. But it puts more of us at risk of disappointment because the, the odds are good that, that we'll come up short in a lot of those sorts of ways. Not so, everybody gets to the top of Mount Maslow. 
That is exactly right. And and frankly, I don't know that everyone should be shooting for it. I don't know that society is best served with 100% of us looking to get that. And I don't know that each of us as individuals are, are, are best served by that. Life is interesting and complicated. We have friendships, we have careers, there's all sorts of ways that we can fulfill various parts of ourselves and, and give of ourselves to others. And so yes, I believe that one of the very reasonable decisions that, that people can make, either single people seeking a marriage or married people who just feel like, why am I frustrated by this stuff all the time, is what are the ways that we can ask less? Are there specific ways that it's like, I keep looking to my spouse to do the following thing and he keeps coming up short. It, and you know, what are the ways that we can say, there's no reason why I have to look to this one person for this specific thing. And those are, I, I think, really good ideas, even for people looking to the top of Maslow's hierarchy, is being concrete, not only about our long list of what we want in a marriage, but starting to say, all right, I'm willing to not ask the following things of my marriage. Um, Dr. Finkel, what a pleasure. Thank you. It was delightful. Thank you so much for having me. I, I, uh, uh, can I have you back again? I just to just to shoot the shit. This was just fun. I like talking to someone who's who uh, is as uh, obsessed with this information as I am. It's really just a, anytime, man. All right. Well, uh, stick around for a couple minutes um, as we talked about before. And to our listeners, I hope you really enjoyed this. Thank you for joining me on the Love You podcast. My name is Evan Mark Katz. Next week, I'm interviewing my friend Lori Gottlieb, author of the incredible and controversial book "Marry Him: The Case for Settling for Mister Good Enough," in which I am featured prominently. So. Uh, in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes in the link below if you're already a subscriber and want to take bold action in making this year the last year you're ever single, please go to www.evanmarkcats.com forward slash coaching and fill out an application. I will see you again next week on the Love You Podcast.